This is Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 30, and these are the words that he pens. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work within him, that is, within Jesus. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the girl, or sorry, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And this king was exceedingly sorry. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. In verses 14 through 30, text that we're looking at this morning. It's the section of text we're concerned with this morning. The prior description of the disciples' mission abruptly shifts to a synopsis of Herod's execution of John the Baptist. It's really interesting the way that Mark lays the text out here. I mean, Mark is writing about Jesus returning to his hometown, Nazareth, and being confronted with unbelief there, being confronted with disbelief there. Even though he and his disciples performed miracles, they cast out demons, and they healed the sick, yet they were met with unbelief. And then right in the middle of this story about Jesus being in his hometown, Mark sandwiches this account of Herod killing John the Baptist, which we actually learned about way back in our study in chapter 1. We saw that Mark, uh, or Mark wrote, rather, that Herod had John arrested. It was all the way back in Mark chapter 1. And here we find the account of that arrest and execution. 
Though we aren't given very much commentary on the life of John the Baptist, he played an incredibly important role in the ministry of Jesus. I mean, John was a special chosen man. He was called out for a very special purpose. He was the forerunner or the front runner of the Messiah. He was the one who was out in front saying, the one who comes after me, he is the one whose sandals we are all unworthy to stoop, bow down, and untie. John himself was not the Messiah, yet he was a great mirror reflecting the coming Messiah. He was the fulfillment, John was, of many Old Testament prophecies. He was a powerful preacher and a fearless prophet. We need more fearless prophets in our days. We have far too many men and women who, when confronted with biblical conviction, bow, dismiss it, and give it away. And so what do we see? What do we find? What is the result? Well, the result is that the moral morass of the world that we live in is going down the tube very quickly, going down the drain very quickly. And many professing Christians are giving an inch, giving a mile, and then giving everything. We must stand on God's word and say, here I stand, I can do no other. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? I would submit to you that in the coming days it will become increasingly more difficult to do so. Ready yourself now. Ready yourself in the season when it is not as difficult. It is difficult, but ready yourself in the season when it is not as difficult so that when the heat is turned up, you're ready to stand in that moment. John was a powerful preacher and a fearless prophet. He was a man among men, a man of God. Jesus himself said of John in Matthew chapter 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That is the man. That is the figure we see imprisoned and executed in our text this morning. What I want to do in our text this morning is I want to chronicle the death of a conscience, specifically as we see it in the person of King Herod, or the Tetrarch, Herod. I think we'll see this clearly as we work through the text here. Number one, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to do so, is this, a pricked conscience, P-R-I-C-K-E-D, a pricked conscience. Think about uh, sewing or using a needle or working with tools out in the garage or doing some yard work and, and you get a splinter. It's a, it's a pricked finger and it hurts sometimes. Well, a conscience likewise can be pricked. I would submit to you that that is one of the first steps in the desensitizing of a conscience is that our conscience becomes pricked. We become aware of righteousness and aware of our subsequent unrighteousness and it, it cuts us on the inside. Cuts us to the quick. It pricks our conscience. Look at verses 14 and 15. Mark writes this. He says, King Herod heard of it. Let me pause right there. That's everything previous in chapter 6. What did King Herod hear of? Well, he heard of Jesus and his disciples, specifically that, that ministry in Nazareth, what they had been doing, healing, uh, casting out demons, uh, preaching the gospel, all this news. And it had probably come from from areas outside of Nazareth as well. Remember, we've seen already throughout our study that the fame of Jesus, we'll see that word here uh, in just a moment again, the fame of Jesus is rising 
word of him uh, is, is quickly spreading. And so King Herod now hears of it. For Jesus' name had become known. For some said, John the Baptist has been risen from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work within him. But others said, he, this is speaking about Jesus now, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. You see, as Jesus and his disciples continued to minister, Jesus' name became a household name. And before long, it wasn't just a household name, but it became a regional name. And it wasn't too long before it, it jumped out of the bounds of the region and Jesus' name became known in high places. Jesus was not just known in the confines of small towns and villages that he had been ministering in. Gone were the days of him just being a prominent figure among the common folk. Now Jesus, his name, his fame, had reached the high places. King Herod heard of it, Mark tells us. Now, Herod is a new character in our drama here. Herod's a new character. This is the first time on the scene in Mark's gospel narrative that we come across the name Herod. His name, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. We meet him here in verse 14. He is one of the many sons of the late Herod the Great. And if you study Christian history, you'll know that Herod the Great was a wicked, vile man. Well, safe to say that his sons were just like him. You know the old adage, the apple doesn't far fall from the tree. And we see that here in our text. Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great. Mark tells us that he had become aware of the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. It's interesting, I love how Matthew's account of Herod, uh, or the the knowledge of Herod, uh, goes here. Matthew writes this. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Now, it's interesting to note here, Mark writes about Herod and refers to him as a king. And that is a title that Herod himself would have relished in. But in fact, Herod was not a king. Herod was a tetrarch, but he would have loved to have been called king. Herod Antipas' father, Herod the Great, ruled over Judea. Remember, it was Herod the Great who was in power when Jesus was born. It was Herod the Great who wanted every male child killed under the age of two, hoping to track down and kill Jesus. But Mary and Joseph, under the direction of the angel of the Lord, had taken Jesus to Egypt, and they did not return to Israel until after they had received word that King Herod, that is Herod the Great, had died. There aren't sufficient English adjectives to describe, again, how ruthless a man Herod the Great was the father of the man we see here in our text. But after his death in 4 BC, according to his will, his kingdom was quartered, and each of his four sons were given authority, or at least pseudo-authority, under Caesar, over a fourth of the kingdom. And such they became tetrarchs, which just means a fourth ruler. And so Herod here, though uh, Mark writes of him, referencing him as King Herod, he is actually not a king, he's a tetrarch. He is just a fourth of a ruler of the kingdom here. Herod Antipas' rule, that's who we're looking at here in our text, covered all Galilee and all Perea, which encompassed much of the territory that Jesus and his disciples uh, ministered in, much of the area that they traversed uh, for their ministry. 
though Herod Antipas wasn't a prominent figure, wasn't nearly as prominent as his father, uh, he seemed to be strikingly similar in his vileness, in his shrewd nature, in his cunning, pitiless, malicious actions. Matter of fact, Jesus refers to him in Luke chapter 13 as Herod that fox. Herod that fox. It's interesting to note that while Jesus was crucified by the permission of Pilate, Peter in Acts chapter 4 mentions Herod Antipas' name before Pilate when recalling those who gathered together against Jesus. This is the character of the man that Mark has just introduced us to in verse 14. And so Herod is now aware of the miraculous powers that are being demonstrated by Jesus and his disciples But it's apparent that while they have heard the chatter about him, they have no idea who he is. Notice who the people relate Jesus to in verses 14 and 15. Mark writes, some said, speaking about Jesus, he's John the Baptist who's been raised from the dead. Others say he's Elijah. Others, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. There were three prevailing opinions Uh, in the day concerning who Jesus was. The first was that Jesus was a resurrected John the Baptist and that he is performing these miraculous powers as a resurrected John the Baptist. Others thought that Jesus was Elijah, that he was just one of the prophets from old. Throughout redemptive history, the Jewish people have had high, very high messianic uh, expectations. They have been waiting for the coming Messiah. Unfortunately, they don't see Jesus Christ as the Messiah who has come. But all throughout redemptive history, all throughout the Old Testament, the Jewish people have had high messianic expectations, waiting for the Messiah Of course, they were wanting a Messiah. They were waiting for a Messiah who would ride in on the back of a great steed and who would free them from Roman oppression, uh, who who would would get them out of the tyranny and the bondage of, of Rome. God, speaking through the prophet Malachi, said this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great days and before the awesome day of the Lord comes. But ironically, not only did some mistake Jesus for Elijah, but they also missed the fact that John the Baptist was the forerunner that God spoke about. John the Baptist is the Elijah that Jesus, or that the Old Testament speaks about. Jesus wasn't the Elijah. John was the Elijah who came before and announced the arrival of Jesus the Messiah. Some thought that he was John the Baptist, some thought that Jesus was Elijah, and others thought that he was a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. You see, others just lumped Jesus in with the rest of God's messengers. He's he's just like one of the other prophets of old. He may have some pithy things to say, he may perform some miracles, but he's just like the rest of them. He's not the one. But look at Herod's conclusion in verse 16. Look at your Bible there. Speaking of Jesus' identity, he says, John, whom I, let me pause right there, the the way the Greek is written right here is incredibly emphatic. John, or I'm sorry, uh, Herod rather, is saying, I'm the one that killed John. That John whom I killed, he's, he's emphasizing that his hands were the ones who had John executed. John whom I beheaded has been raised What's going on here? 
What's, what's going on here? Herod speaking, says, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. What's going on here? Well, I think what we're seeing here is the dread of a guilty and fearful, which those two things always go together, by the way. Guilt and fear always go together. Let me take you back real quick to the garden. Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord. What did they do immediately? They went and hid, right? Why? We were fearful of you. Guilt always produces fear. Those two things always go hand in hand. I think what we're seeing here in our text is the dread of a guilty and fearful man. Again, Herod is stressing that he bears responsibility for John's death. And as a result of his disturbed, uneasy conscience and disposition to superstition, he's being very superstitious here, John, whom I beheaded, well, he must have come back from the dead. He's been resurrected, very superstitious here. Herod feared that John the Baptist had returned in the person of Jesus to potentially haunt and torment him. You can put yourself in Herod's shoes here for just a minute. If you're the one who's killed John, and you think that John is now resurrected and come back, you've got some questions to answer. He's fearful because he's guilty. What we see here is the beginning of a pricked conscience. A pricked conscience. Mark tells us in verse 20 that Herod feared John because he killed him. Because John was a righteous and holy man. But Herod was increasingly terror-struck as he considered that John had returned from the grave and was now in some way wielding miraculous powers. What's he going to do to me, I wonder? If he's out there wielding miraculous powers, I I wonder what he's going to do to me, the one who had him executed. Sadly, Herod's guilty conscience wasn't sufficient to cause him to repent and to look to the one who could forgive his sins. He's got a pricked conscience, but he refuses to look to Christ. He refuses to heed John's message. We'll see later in our text here that that Herod oftentimes sat at John's prison cell and, and would listen to him perplexed, would have interest in hearing John preach from prison, but yet Herod failed to heed John's message. Our text this morning not only chronicles the death of John the Baptist, but also the death of a conscience. And it can happen to us. Our conscience can be desensitized so that it doesn't feel much anymore. Let's talk about that for just a second. What is a conscience? What is a conscience? Well, your conscience is that God-given warning system that alerts you when you violated God's law. Uh, One person has said this, your conscience is what tells mom before your sister does. That's your conscience, okay? It's that built-in warning system that alerts you when you violated God's law. Paul writes about this conscience. He he tells us some things about this conscience in Romans chapter 2. Don't don't turn there. Stay right where you are. But Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It's probably a familiar text to you. Paul writes this. He says, for when the Gentiles, not the Jews, were the Gentiles who do not have the law, who didn't possess the law, who weren't given the oracles of God, when the Gentiles who do not have the law, do by nature what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they themselves do not have the law. What they do is they show that the work of the the law has been written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or excuse them. 
That's what your conscience does. Your conscience either accuses you when you are acting unrighteously or your conscience affirms you and excuses you. What your conscience does. It either accuses or excuses you. Your conscience is to your soul what pain sensors are to your body. It inflicts distress in the form of guilt. Or guilt and fear, they, they, they go together. They are the result of sin. Guilt and fear did not exist prior to Adam and Eve's fall in the garden. Guilt and fear are a product or are the result of sin. And when we sin, our conscience inflicts distress in the form of guilt. When we act unrighteously, fallen, lost, and desperately wicked as we all are born into this world, yet God has taken great care to leave himself a witness in our hearts. Even lost people have this God-given witness. We'll see in our text this morning that it can be suppressed, that it can be desensitized. But even lost people have a conscience that has the ability to to wave the big warning flag, to to start circling the, the warning siren and light when I'm doing things, saying things, thinking things that are unrighteous. It's a poor blind guide, our conscience is, apart from the Holy Spirit, but every person has one. If you try to describe what your conscience is, here's what I would say. Your conscience is what hurts when everything else feels good. Your conscience is what hurts when everything else seems to feel good. But if we suppress that God-given warning system over and over and over again, refusing to let it lead us to righteousness, what happens is it becomes less and less sensitive to sin until virtually there is no distinction between that which is right and wrong, pure and impure, light and darkness. Herod's conscience is pricked here as he's confronted with the fact that he murdered John, but he suppresses that guilt and he refuses to repent. Verses 14 through 16, uh, those verses there, they give us the context for Herod's fear. But verse 17 and the following begin a flashback in chapter 6 here, where the Holy Spirit inspires Mark, who penned this gospel that bears his name here, to recount the details surrounding John's death at the hands of Herod. So what we see here beginning in verse 7, it's actually a flashback. and Mark is writing about it here. Look at verses 17 and 18 in your Bible there. Mark writes, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You see, sometime after the baptism of Jesus, which was early in Mark's gospel, sometime after that baptism and the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, John had been arrested. I mentioned that already. We see that back in chapter 1, verse 14. John the Baptist was arrested. Most likely, John was taken to a place called Macarius, uh, where Herod had built lavish fortresses. Uh, there was a palace there, and there was a prison deep in the dungeon uh, of this fortress that sat high on a ridge near the Dead Sea. 
Within this fortress was an, was an opulent palace. That's where Herod would have lived. And below it were filthy, disgusting prison cells where John would have been held uh, from the time he was arrested in Mark chapter 1 until the time that he was beheaded. And you ask yourself the question, why? Why did Herod have John arrested? Why did Herod have John arrested? Mark says that Herod had John arrested for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now, Herod had two brothers. Both were named Philip. Okay? The Herod right here in our text, not Herod the Great, his father, Herod Antipas, here in our text here, he had two brothers, both named Philip. One was part of the Tetrarch. Uh, so one served, like Uh, like Herod, as a a fourth part or a fourth ruler of the kingdom there, and the other was just a private citizen in Rome. Now, it was Philip from Rome whose wife was Herodias. This This is the wife that Herod took as his own and married her. Mark doesn't fill in the details for us in his gospel, but the old church historian Josephus writes that Herod on one of his visits to Rome to see Philip, his brother, persuaded Herodias, who was his brother's wife and subsequently also his niece, making her also his sister-in-law. It's really sick. He convinced her to divorce Philip and to run away with him and be married. The Herodian dynasty was incredibly complex, to say the least. As a matter of fact, one commentator says the Herodian family a tree was as twisted as the roots of an olive tree. Sick, vile things. And so when John the Baptist heard of Herod's affair and divorce, he strongly condemned it. He was a preacher. He was a teacher. He was a thus says the Lord kind of man. Praise God. And so he he condemns Herod's actions here. John was a man of conviction. Not even the royal house, not even Herod was exempt from from John's call to radical righteousness and radical repentance. He lived for the truth. He called a spade a spade. We need to do that. We need to do it with grace and with truth, but we need to call a spade a spade. We call sin, sin. We don't call it a slip up. We don't call it a kink in the chain. We don't call it a, a disturbance or distraction in life. We don't call it a ripple in the water. We call it what it is. It is sin. Sin is sin. John let Herod know that Herodias, being his wife, being taken as his wife, was not only wrong, but it was unlawful. It's interesting to note here that John did not refer to Herodias as Herod's wife. Look at your Bible there. He said, it is unlawful unlawful for you to take your brother's wife. It's unlawful for you to take your brother's wife. Herod was a Jewish proselyte, convert. And so what John did is John called Herod out for violating the law of God. It's unlawful for you, Herod, to take your brother's wife. Be sure of this. Being a herald of the truth, being a proclaimer of the truth, man, woman, boy, girl, adult, child, being a proclaimer of the truth will cost you. It'll cost you. We'll see it cost John here. It cost John the Baptist, it cost Jesus' disciples, it cost Jesus, and you can mark the fact that being a proclaimer of the truth will cost you. It'll cost you. 
It may or may not cost you your life, but rest assured, it will come with a price tag. Look at verse 19. By the way, I am fully aware that we're on point number one. (laughs) Fully aware. Two, three, and four are much shorter. We're front-loaded here. Hang with me, all right? Look at verse 19. Mark writes, And Herodias had a grudge against him, that's against John the Baptist, and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Now, be sure that Herod didn't love John's reproof. Herod did not love, he was not excited about John the Baptist uh, condemning his adulterous relationship with Herodias. But Herodias, on the other uh, hand, fumed at the fact that John would condemn her actions. What did she do? She nurtured a grudge that would not be satisfied until John was dead and gone. She was not going to be content until he had been wiped out, erased for good. The text literally says that Herodias had it in for John. That's a uh, maybe a, a smoother translation there in English. Herodias had it in for John. For Herodias, it was the power to kill John that was lacking. It was not the want to kill John that was lacking. She wanted him dead. She just didn't have the power and the authority at the time. Because Herod, at least for a time, kept John safe in prison. Herodias here in our text, this, this character, the wife of Philip, uh, Herod's brother, Herodias here, she is a picture of how bitterly people hate reproof when they are determined to hold on to their sin. When a person is determined and they have clenched their fist, white-knuckled around their sin, they hate it when they are reproved. One of the marks of of a growing Christian is that we are thankful, that we're humbled when another brother or sister comes to us and says, hey, I see some unrighteousness in your life. We say, thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you, sister, for loving me enough to tell me the truth. That's one of the marks of a growing Christian. One of the marks of a growing hard heart is that we hate it when someone else reproves us for our sin. How do we respond? Do we humbly acknowledge and repent of our sin when others make it aware of it, uh, aware of it, or do we uh, rear back and strike? Herod's response to John was quite different from Herodias' response. Look at verse twenty there in your Bible. Mark writes, "For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly." You see, though Herod didn't like the fact that John called his sin out, there was something peculiar about John's teaching that kept drawing Herod back to it. I mean, Herod would, would, would travel down the staircase and through the corridors and the passages from the, the, the opulent palace to the prison cell to hear John on a regular basis. It's a fascinating story here. Herod would listen to John preach about the Messiah. He would listen to John preach about repentance and the coming kingdom. And he would leave perplexed, confounded, and torn between the the truth that he just heard and his deep-rooted love for sin. And you can see the tension here. 
He's hearing the gospel, but he loves his sin. He's hearing the truth of the coming Messiah, the Messiah who has come, but yet he loves his sin. Herod's fear of John was the only reason uh, that that John stayed alive. The Greek word for fear here, it's in the imperfect tense. In other words, Herod had a perpetual, reoccurring fear of John. Why? Why, you ask? Why this perpetual, reoccurring, kind of non-stop, nagging fear of John? Well, because light is terrifying to darkness. Because righteousness is a fearful thing to evil. Look at the text there again. John was a righteous and holy man. Herod knew that John was innocent. Furthermore, he knew that John's uh, condemning of his adulterous relationship with Herodias was true. These are true things, you say, John. The picture here of Herod is of a torn, double-minded man. It's possible, this is a hill that I'm not willing to die on, but it's possible that Herod actually thought, this, this kind of runs in the vein or in the line of, of Herod's superstitious nature. But it's possible that Herod thought that listening to John teach and preach there at his prison cell door would somehow atone for his condition. You know, we don't know that that's the case for certain, but nonetheless, that same tragic mistake is made today. This very morning, There are individuals sitting in church pews around the globe who presume falsely that sitting under the teaching and preaching of God's word will somehow atone for their sin. Nothing can be farther from the truth. Nothing can be farther from the truth. Jesus alone, Christ crucified, can atone for our sin. Now, in those churches where the gospel is faithfully taught, that light, the light of the gospel, the the heat of the gospel, it does two things. In some hearts, it melts that heart like wax. And others who are sitting in churches this morning, faithful gospel-preaching churches who are hearing the gospel fearlessly and faithfully proclaimed, that light that melts wax in some hearts will harden it like clay or stone in other hearts. Don't make the mistake, friends. Please, I beg you, don't make the mistake that being a good churchman or churchwoman will somehow save your soul. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out many demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, clearly, away from me, you evildoers never knew you. I never knew you. It's interesting to note that Herod respects John, but at the same time, he rejects his teaching. He vacillates, Herod vacillates back and forth between the the bedroom chambers of Herodias and the prison cell of John. He was intrigued by the righteousness of John's life, but he loved his sin as well. He was fascinated by John's message as a matter of fact, your, your Bible there says probably he heard him gladly. Hedonos is the word. That's where we get our word hedonism. He heard him with great pleasure, but yet Herod was fearful of the consequences of that message. He heard it gladly, but fearful of its consequences. He 
You ever been there? You ever been caught in the spin cycle between your conscience and your lifestyle? What your conscience is saying is wrong. What your conscience is exposing you, but you want to hold on to unrighteousness. I pray that you wouldn't live there, friends. I pray that you would not live there. I can almost picture Herod walking away after hearing John preach, being very conflicted, thinking to himself, I have everything. I have power. I have pleasure. I have prominence. I have possessions. They're all at my fingertips and at my disposal. Why do I need to repent? Why do I need forgiveness? I'm happy. This is the gospel of the evil one. Satan would love to convince you that you have everything you need, that you're happy, and that you can be happy in the things of this temporary world. It's a lie. Everything that you see, save the word of God and the souls of men, is fleeting. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If it rots, rusts, collects dust, or dies, do not put your hope in it. That describes everything apart from the word of God and the souls of men. Herod silenced the voice that pricked his conscience. And so his conscience becomes increasingly darkened and desensitized. But to be pricked is the first in a downward spiral. Number two, a desensitized conscience. We go from a pricked conscience to a desensitized conscience. Hang on, we're going to move quickly. While Herodias had been previously uh, restrained from acting on her harbored grudge against John for a period of time, there became a perfect opportunity for her to put her plan into motion. Look at verse 21. Mark writes, But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. You see, the celebration of birthdays uh, in Jesus' day were, were oftentimes very opulent. They were very lavish events, especially for nobility. Royal feasts were, were extravagant. They were a display of wealth. They were a display of provision. It was a, it was a way to say, look who I am and look what I have. These parties oftentimes included well-stocked bars that operated late into the evening. The, the drinks would be flowing and the laughter would heighten and the moral inhibitions of those who were there slowly became non-existent. This is the opportunity that Herodias capitalizes on here. Mark notes that Herod had invited his nobles, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. This is a banquet of a, of a who's who in Galilee. And Herodias sees this as an opportunity to take out John. The celebration takes an interesting turn. Look at your Bible there again, verses 22 and 23. Mark writes, For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Wow, what a, what a vow. Herodias' daughter, though not given to us in Mark's account, her name is Salome. She's not the biological daughter of Herod, but rather the daughter of Herodias and Philip, making her Herod's niece and stepdaughter. 
probably in her middle teens, and as she danced, these men, uh, these military commanders, these nobles, they were unusually delighted. Mark writes that her dancing pleased Herod and his guests. They had seen professional dancers in the past because that's what took place at these opulent festivals, but such dancing was normally performed by court dancers or prostitutes, never by respected women of nobility. The Jews would have never permitted a woman to dance before a group of men. And most Galilean mothers would have forbidden their daughters to do what Herodias asked her daughter to do. After the enjoyment of Salome's dancing, Herod made an oath, a vow to this young girl. Ask me whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. Up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. It's probable that Herod's offer was just mere jest. You can think about it. Here he is, the drinks have been flowing, he's excited, and it's very probable that his vow or his words were just a jest here. But nonetheless, Herodias is going to take him up on his offer as Salome goes back to mom and tells him. You see, Herod ruled, if you can even call it that, under the authority of Caesar, and you can bet, you can bet that Caesar would not allow Herod to... Uh, to, uh, to engage with a, a teenage girl uh, and, and give away a piece of his kingdom to her just for her dancing services. Caesar would have never allowed the very thing that Herod just promised Salome. We can think that it's probably a promise made in jest here. Salome didn't even know what to ask for. Look at verse 24. She, she went out and asked her mother Herodias, for what should I ask? And here's the opportunity that Herodias has been waiting for. She told her daughter the head of John the Baptist, that is what you need to ask for. In verse 25, Mark says that she came in immediately with haste and said to the king, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. It almost seemed as though the, the added detail of on a platter was her own. Was her own. What we see here is a desensitized conscience, pricked at first, guilt and fear, Now, uh, having the inhibitions of alcohol in him, this conscience is being desensitized more and more. Look at number three there on your outline. We see the third progression here, a seared conscience, a seared conscience. What was Herod's reaction to Salome's request? Look at verse 26. Mark says, and the king was exceedingly sorry, interesting, because of his oaths. And his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. Interesting to note that the, uh, the Greek word, the Greek verb there, translated sorry, means distressed. Herod was greatly distressed. It's used only one other time in the New Testament. It's used of Jesus uh, as Jesus agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, my soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. You see, in a very moment, in an instant, Herod was thrown from delight to dilemma. Only moments before, Herod had reveled in boisterous festivities. Now he sat conflicted, filled with deep feelings of grief and sorrow. Whatever request Herod thought he might have received from Salome, as he offered up half the kingdom, the head of John the Baptist was not on that list we can probably surmise. Herod stood at yet another fork in the road. He could renege on his offer, 
But then he would look weak in front of all of his guests. He would look weak in front of all the military commanders and all the nobles. He would become a laughingstock in his imperial administration. And instead of doing what he knew was right, he caved to the pressure of his guests' curious eyes. Notice the the influence of others here in the text. Do Do you catch it? The reason that Herod did what he did was because of the gazing, watchful eye of those who were in attendance. A wise man once told me, sin will take you farther than you're willing to go. It will keep you longer than you're willing to stay, and it will cost you more than you're willing to pay. Every single time, it's as good as gold. You can take it to the bank. The Bible warns of the possibility of a seared conscience. Uh, jot this in, in the margin there if you want to go back and look at a text later. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. 1 Timothy first, uh, chapter 4, verse 2 speaks of a seared conscience. The word seared there in 1 Timothy 4, 2, it's the word kosterizo. It's where we get our English word to cauterize something. The meaning of the word seared there in 1 Timothy, it means to be branded with marks of guilt, to be seared into insensibility. Look at what Mark writes in verses 27 and 28. And immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head, and he went out and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. It's a desensitized conscience no longer has the ability to feel. When we are acting in unrighteousness and that internal warning system that God has given us is suppressed or dismissed, your conscience will be thinned. Your conscience will be desensitized so that it begins to feel less and less unrighteousness and that's a very, very dangerous place to be. Very, very dangerous place to be. Look at verse 29, Mark writes, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body, that is John, and laid it in a tomb and buried him. It's probable that John's disciples remained somewhere close uh, to where John was imprisoned. That way they could minister to his needs while he was in prison. The final act of ministry that John's disciples had to him was to recover his dead, cold, lifeless body and to bury it. If you're anything like me, You can be tempted at times to think about how little the reward of some of God's best servants seem to be in this world, how little reward some of God's greatest servants seem to receive in this world, but we must remember that the true Christian's rest, the true Christian's crown, the true Christian's wages, the true Christian's reward, they're all on the other side of the grave. They're all on the other side of the grave. To die is to have Christ. I live for Christ, I die for Christ. To die is to gain my greatest reward. Every, uh, I'm sorry, heaven rather, will take care of every earthly perceived loss for the Christian. And I quote perceived because most of what we perceive as loss is not really loss. Lastly, a lifeless conscience. A lifeless conscience and I'm not going to speak about this. I'll just say that uh, after the conscience is seared and desensitized and it's, con- it's continually uh, desensitized and brazed and branded by guilt and an unrighteous lifestyle and a refusal to repent, the conscience becomes lifeless where it no longer 
works at all. It no longer works at all. I've given you a passage that you can go back and look at uh, on your own this week. Maybe that would make a a devotional time for you. But Luke 23, verses 6 through 11, speaks uh, about Herod and and the, the, the final stage in the death of his conscience, where his conscience no longer responded to righteousness. No longer responded to righteousness. Friends, let me tell you, what we see here in our text this morning is a warning for all of us. It's a warning for me. It's a warning for you. What shape is your conscience in? It's a good evaluation question. What shape is your conscience in? Is it tender? Is it responsive to God's word? Or is it dull and unresponsive? You see, the death of a conscience begins with small things that invariably become large things. When you do something that you know is wrong, when you think something that you know is wrong, when you speak in ways and act in ways that you know are wrong, and you continue in them, and then you, can try, or then you continue to try to cover them up, your conscience becomes hardened, callous, and resistant. And so how do you protect your conscience? Let me give you just three really brief things here. How do you protect your conscience? How do you keep it soft, moldable, and pliable? Well, first, you need to cultivate it. You need to cultivate it. By, by a healthy introduction, daily introduction of God's word to your heart and mind. Cultivate your conscience so that it is informed by God's word. Your conscience by itself, if it's not informed by the right thing, will not act in the right way. It needs to be informed by the word of God, so cultivate it. Secondly, listen to it. If your conscience is biblically informed, listen to it. I don't mean uh, in some sort of mystical way. Uh, But when the Lord prompts our heart as to unrighteousness, listen, listen, repent, and obey. And lastly here, keep your conscience clean through confession of sin and acceptance of God's forgiveness. And that's a continual, that's that's a lifestyle for the believer. Repentance is not a one-time activity. It is a continual event. Keep your conscience clean. Keep your conscience clean. Uh, moldable, pliable by regularly confessing sin and accepting God's forgiveness. You know, it's interesting here. Go ahead and close your Bible. It's interesting to note that Mark follows the the martyrdom of John the Baptist with a one-sentence summary here in verse 30 of the evangelistic mission of the disciples. Look at verse 30. Mark writes, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that he had done and taught, all that they had done and taught. Interesting to me, it seems as though this verse would have naturally followed verse 13. Why do you suppose that this line here in verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught, comes at the end of the martyrdom of John the Baptist? Is it possible that Mark is highlighting the inseparable relationship between mission and martyrdom? Is it it possible that Mark is highlighting the relation between discipleship and death? God's mission takes place in a hostile world. Jesus' disciples, that's you and me if we know him, live in this hostile world. Nonetheless, this past shows us that despite persecution and even death, A hostile world cannot thwart the purposes and the mission of God. 